I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we discuss horror films by categories and subgenres such as slashers, vampires, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. So uh, we made it through episode one, on to episode two. And we decided to come back and do this again like two crazy people. Yes. After going back and listening to the first episode, uh, I could see we tighten it up a little bit, but I felt like it was pretty solid for a first episode. Yeah, I think so. I was a little long-winded in a few spots, but that's what happens when you're shitty at prep. Uh, we also don't really have a format yet, so I feel like that's kind of coming together and tightening it up, so that's going to be really good. Yes. But uh, last week, we covered the 60s and 70s of the slasher genre, the, the building blocks, if you will, to get us to Halloween, which kind of set everything in stone to, to follow thereafter. And this week, we're going to go over the 80s for you, which, my God, there is so many fucking slashers in the 80s that this list is very long that we're going to try to cover in a small amount of time. And even then, it's just a fraction of it. Yeah, there's going to be so much stuff that we don't cover. We're going to really try to stay on point with prominent things that stuck with the genre and had staying power and harken back to the uh, the foundation discussed in the previous episode. And you can't really talk about slashers without talking about the the big three that everybody likes to cover, which is Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, and Freddy fucking Krueger. Your favorite right there. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's several other very popular slashers like Prom Night, Sleepaway Camp, Terror Train, and we're going to briefly mention those in some way later, but right now we're going to cover our heavy hitters, our big three. We already covered my boy Mikey last episode, so we're not going to go through that again. But what he did is he made an iconic killer, which I would say Leatherface was an iconic killer before he was. Yeah. But that movie was just like, uh, you invaded my home and I'm going to kill everybody. Now we got this guy with the mask, with the, with the theme music and the look going around and murdering everybody. And it just really stuck. And that movie made a shit ton of money for its minimal budget and people wanted to mimic it. But we're on to the big three. We have to get to Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. But before we can even get to Jason Voorhees, we got to do Friday the 13th part one which is actually my favorite film of the franchise. But there is not an iconic killer in this film. No, there's not. And as mentioned before, there will be spoilers. We're uh, not going through completely editing all that out. And um, once again, this is just our interpretation. And as fans, how we see things in the series. We might leave some movies out that you guys like. And uh, sorry in advance, but it's going to happen because there's too many of them. But in the 80s, we had lots of slashers pop up. There's prominent ones like Prom Night, Sleepaway Camp, Terror Train, and many others that we're going to bring up. But Friday the 13th came in in 1980, just two years after Halloween. And it was made by Sean Cunningham. He had made some family films. Uh, but before that, he had worked with Wes Craven on Last House on the Left. And he, he decided to do the family thing. And he wasn't really getting his name out there. wasn't really making the money. And then he saw Halloween and, and how much money it made and how popular it was. And he's like, I got to make a horror movie. So what he did is he came up with Friday the 13th. He's like, that's another spooky holiday. I can sell this. And he actually made an ad, which was, you ever seen the Friday the 13th logo breaking through the glass? Yeah. He made that as a poster and put it out in magazines and movie theaters like it was a movie coming out. No script, no idea, nothing. And he just put that out and he started getting phone calls. When's this movie coming out? We want to distribute it. Who has a distribution oh, rights. Oh, what a tease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did it, and then he got the funding to make the movie, and he called up a writing partner of his that he had uh, worked with in the past, and they had made like uh, some Bad News Bears knockoff movies, and he said, hey, I want to make this movie. I want you to go see Halloween. I want you to take notes, and then I want you to write me something. So Victor Miller, that was the writer, he went and saw the movie, and he wasn't a big horror movie fan, to my understanding, but he watched it, and he said, I think I figured out how to make a really good horror movie. The movie needs a past horrific event to happen. we got to have adolescence in it. they got to die while they're having sex. <laughs> and I'm going to start writing. And then they, they had to figure out special effects. Then they got Tom Savini. He had just came off of Dawn of the Dead doing the special effects. 
the now legendary Tom Savini. And he's legend. This is probably some of his more legendary work. I would say it's fantastic yeah. in this movie. But just to give you a little brief synopsis of the movie before we go in discussing it, you have a camp. Uh, I believe it starts in 1958, roughly. There is so. two counselors getting ready to have sex, and you have like the whole POV thing of the slasher coming in, and they appear to know the person, it seems, and they just get killed and die. And the time lapses to 1980. And you see the, the camp's getting set up again, and it's following this girl. You don't really know what's going on, and she's walking through town. But long story short, she's supposed to be the cook at the camp. Yeah. And the camp's not actually open yet. The counselors are in training and getting ready. And you see this like ragtag group of people come together. And of course, the cook never makes it there. She gets killed in the way. Yep. You're introduced to Alice, the final girl. You don't know if she's going to be the final girl yet. But when she pops in the movie, she kind of has this like den mother vibe, right? Like she's there. She's telling everybody what to do and this and this and that. And they just go through setting up the camp, building things. You see them drinking, having a good time, smoking pot. Screwing, things like that. All the things they shouldn't be doing. Right, right, right. And they all die a violent death. You know, you see lots of stalking POV, and there's some cool fucking deaths in this movie. Yeah. Th this was one where you really had practical effects come into their own. We're not just seeing cutaways or a quick stab. We're starting to actually see people do some work and uh, show how cool it can be and how fun it can be. And there, there are some cutaways because, like, you see the axe coming in and then it goes to the person that's sticking out of their head. And Sean Cunningham, I saw in an interview, said he's talking to Tom Savini and he said, I want an axe in the head. And he said, well, do you want a fake head with a real axe or a fake axe with a real head? And the guy's <laughs> like, I don't know. Surprise me. <laughs> and we got the styrofoam axe into the real head is what we got. But okay. it, it looks fucking fantastic. Kevin Bacon getting that arrow through the throat and the lamb blood spraying out, which that was just, it was just all phenomenal. Yeah, I saw a thing on that. There's like four people up under him with him going through the rig and everything to actually make that work. But um, that, yeah. that's what makes that stuff work is actually working hard and getting the shot. And just to show like how fucking involved Tom Savini was, the pump actually stopped working and he had to yank the hose off and he put it in his mouth and blew the lamb's blood out himself to make it spray. That's why it goes. That's <laughs> right. But anyways, you see these camp counselors, you know, playing. Strip Monopoly, which has got to be the longest, slowest strip game you could play. Yeah, that sounds awful. Drinking their Budweiser, hanging out, and getting picked off one by one until finally you get down to your final girl, Alice. So they're, they've seen Laurie Strode. They've seen how it worked. They're going to do this in their movie. And she barricades in her house. like It's very Scooby-Doo, the way she barricaded yeah. the house up. But when she does this, somebody comes with headlights, and she goes out front thinking she's safe. And this little old lady comes out that looks like you know she belongs in like an I Love Lucy episode. Yeah. I'm saved. Yeah. And she thinks she's saved. And then this woman starts talking, goes kind of crazy. And you find out that, I mean, spoilers, but this movie's old as shit. She's the killer. Her son, Jason Voorhees, drowned while camp counselors are having sex and she's going to murder everybody. Yep. So, yeah, she's really pissed off there. None of them uh, were paying attention. So she's coming back and killing off all these. And um, so she really didn't want anybody back there um, was the main point of it. And, uh, you know, a plot hole that you've mentioned before in our discussions is, you know, there was, they talk about, oh, they couldn't open the camp this year because of the water. They couldn't open the camp this year because of this, that, and the other. They say dude's been there working for like months or whatever. I trying think it's to a get few weeks. They say ready. like six weeks and she knows yeah. them by name. Like she knows the family and you're thinking, why didn't she just go kill that guy? Yeah. Right. And then the camp wouldn't have opened again, but apparently she spiked the water levels one time. She burned down part of the building. But she really did not want anybody coming back to this camp. No, apparently she'd had enough and now she had bloodlust and wanted to actually kill them all. Right. And, and I would say this movie didn't really do anything special about the plot. It was fun to watch and enjoyable. Yeah. It, it, like I said, it's my favorite of the Friday the 13th movies. But what they definitely did, they brought gore up a notch, which I'm not always a huge like I need gore for slasher movies. But I felt like it was appropriate in this movie. Yes. And, uh, there's a time and place for it. 
Right. And and they also they gave us the camp trope, which is used in the 80s again. But it's I mean, people still tell camp stories and whatnot. Yeah. Did you ever go to summer camp when you were a kid? I didn't, but uh, I did go camping enough with an older cousin that uh, we'd actually go out to places like that. And seeing movies like this would definitely creep you out. Um, we actually got asked to come and scare a group of Boy Scouts at one point that were camping on my uncle's property. So we put on masks and shit and got chainsaws. And in the middle of the <laughs> night, went and found them and were like running chainsaws into their tents. Um, that's that's next level shit. That's a little extreme with the chainsaws. Well, they, <laughs> they did not have the chains on them. So oh, okay, it was okay. just, just the noise. But uh, I feel like that's a relevant part. You left off the story. <laughs> no, but I used to go to summer camp. I think it was two weeks long. No, it was one week long. And like the lake, we had a little island in the middle of the trees. And there was always the stories about the crazy guy with the axe that lived there that was probably made up. And the reason why I said two weeks, I ended up being a counselor for two oh, okay. years. 15 and 16, I think. So did you do some drinking and fucking? Uh, there wasn't any drinking. There wasn't any fucking either. But like. You know, you would go to camp, but we, we would have a week. So I actually know how this works. You would have a week with just the camp counselors training and getting ready. And then a week for the kids to come stay. Right. Gotcha. And the counselors, we did sneak out of our cabins at night. We got in a little paddle boat. You'd go out in the lake, you'd smoke cigarettes. We didn't have any booze because we were all like 15 and 16. It's a little young. Gotcha. Gotcha. A little bit of making out and stuff, you know, but the shit happens. It was real. So, but it gave us that trope. We didn't have that. It gave us an, a next level of gore that I thought was very appropriate. And we had a really convincing killer with a story to tell. We did. And, uh, and we had the twist um, at the end and the reveal of Jason himself um, with the scene at the end, well, towards the very end, out, uh, out on the boat, coming up out of the water, which left the door open to come in with a sequel. Right, right. And that sequel gave us Jason, which you, you hear the mom talk about a little bit. She's like the, go get him, mommy, and stuff like that, yeah. getting all creepy, you know, and, and having that conversation then. And I would like to say Alice was a pretty decent final girl. She just found a lot of like bodies just butchered everywhere, tried to barricade herself, thought she found help. And she does a good job, like fire pokers, pans. I mean, it's, it's all right. But she really like when she gets the machete and just chops her fucking head off. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was pretty good. I mean, we had Lori Strode with the with the stab him in the neck or the eye with the clothes hanging. But she she decapitated somebody. So that yep, was impressive. But that brings us into the second one, because we have to get to the second one to actually get to our, our slasher. Yeah. Because Mrs. Voorhees, as cool as she was, was not a slasher. She was a no. serial killer in a gory thriller movie. The second movie, it opens up and you see somebody walk in through like a rainy town and you don't know who it is. And it cuts to Alice and you can see that she's like, uh, like got PTSD, talking to her parents, living alone, takes a shower, goes to check, see if she has some eggs or something and finds Mrs. Voorhees decapitated fucking head in the refrigerator. Yep. Just chilling. And while she's doing that, she gets an ice pick to the head and just fucking dies. Yeah, they really shafted her character in the opening of that movie. I feel like she got screwed because she was a pretty decent final girl from the first one. And why even put her in the movie if you're just going to kill her like that? Just have her move away, right? Yeah. But when you see Jason later in the movie, he has a fucking burlap sack over his head with one eye cut out. And we're supposed to believe that he somehow found this girl's address without Google and shit. You got to remember that. (laughs) Walks through the rain through town. And there's actually a kid like 10 feet in front of him in the opening scene. And nobody saw his creepy ass walking around with the mask on just to ice pick her. But, you know, we got (laughs) to ice pick as a weapon out of that. So that was kind of cool. But I felt like she got she got shafted. But like, so the second movie, it's five years later, I think. And it's at a separate camp on the other side. Camp Crystal Lake. So that it's not Camp Blood. We're on the other side. We're safe. And they do a better job, I feel like, of building the archetypes up of the counselors. They do. Because you don't just have like the, oh, we're all just trying to get laid and work. Like you have like the jokester, funny guy. You have the couple that's sneaking off and doing stuff. And you just have like a, you got a psychology major in there that's your, your final girl in the end. Yep. 
Jenny, and she actually popped up in some other slasher movies down the road. Yeah. But uh, it, the, the way the movie got made was really funny because they filmed the movie, and I think it was days after the original Friday the 13th released. Sean Cunningham actually got a call from Paramount, and they're like, hey, I want you to make a second one. And he's like, second one? We already killed the fucking killer. How are we going to make a second one? Yeah. And then they're like, let's use this Jason character. And he's like, you mean the mongoloid? And that's Tom Savini's words, not mine. The mongoloid <laughs> zombie boy that jumped out of the water. Uh, okay, sure. And he thought about it. He didn't really want to do it. So he used Steve Miner, which I think helped him produce the first one, but it was his protege to direct it. Okay. And they decided to make the second movie and use Jason. And they basically made him like this feral hillbilly guy living in the woods. He had that shack and stuff. Remember? Yep. He eats the dog and he goes around and he's just picking them off just like the first one. I really don't feel like the second one did anything for the genre other than give you a slasher. No, it was rinse and repeat. Um, nothing to add. But we're starting to see uh, we're starting to see things get formulaic, um, which isn't always a bad thing, because like we joked about earlier that, you know, the studios are like, hey, this makes money. Make it. You need hit these bullet points like was discovered from just ripping off. Why did Halloween work? And on, right, right. on paper, it's like, well, this is why it worked. But uh, some of that starts to fall into place. We start to see that really get solidified in the rules. You know, don't don't be doing drugs. Don't be having sex. You're going to die. You have your second use of I'll be right back also. You, yes. And you've got that as well. Um, and you have a, a Jenny is an awesome final girl to me. She used reverse psychology to trick Jason Voorhees into thinking she was the mother. Yeah, because she puts on the sweater and right, starts right. talking to him like, oh, you've done You've been a good boy. You've done a good job. You can stop now. Or and then she shit. gets him. Is it with the machete? I don't remember if it's the machete again. I, or I not. think the machete's sitting on the shrine with the decapitated head and, and the that camera. Sounds right. Yeah, but she she gets him, and that was pretty badass for a final girl to do that. But it, there's a lot of plot holes in that movie that really bother me because you're gonna you're gonna tell me that Jason needed his mother and loved her dearly, almost drowned. She thought he was dead, and he just lived in the woods by himself. Stumbled upon her getting decapitated and decided to do revenge. I'd like to see this like mapped out somewhere. I, I don't think they could do that. I feel like it's a really big plot hole. Well, you're talking about plot holes. We've also got. The kid in the wheelchair who makes it a point to tell the chick that his dick still works. And there <laughs> is no ADA compliant ramp to get his ass in the house. And they never show how they get him up and down those steps. But he's always in there. That is a cool kill scene, though. <laughs> he takes the fucking machete to the head and he just rolls backwards down like 300 steps that we don't even know why they're there. Yeah, that doesn't look safe. Why would you build it like that? <laughs> but that gave us Jason Voorhees. And really, that didn't fully give us Jason Voorhees. He doesn't have a hockey mask yet. No. He doesn't like uh, it, it takes part three for him to have the mask, the full look and really just get violent on the kills. He also gets those cool slasher like steps off camera in the camera, scary scenes. But we could talk about the whole Friday the 13th franchise here trying to get there. Yeah. And we will do that eventually sometime when we get to the Friday the 13th franchise. But right now, it's just important to say that we, we had a knockoff of Halloween, stole some points, made a successful movie, enough money to shit out a sequel. I'd like to point out Friday 13th part two actually came out before Halloween part two. Oh, really? Yeah. I think they came out the same year, but like, that's how quick they did Friday. Was 13th. this another four months apart thing? No, because <laughs> Halloween is in 78. Right. And then this was 80. And then I, they both came out in 81. Okay. But they were just a few months apart, but it actually beat Halloween. It jumped the gun to make a sequel and oh. reuse the final girl and stuff. They both had the original final girl in the movie, but we know Lori makes it in Halloween too. Yeah. But, I mean, they, they stole the formula, they solidified it, they made a sequel, which became, technically, that's another element of a slasher movie right there, just having a bunch of sequels for the most part. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not a big sequel guy generally, but it, it did all this, and it made it work, and then it invented Jason, which we don't fully get till part three, and we'll cover all this later, yeah. but he's there, and then, the, you know, we have lots of other slashers coming off with their whodunits and no-name killers, and we're going to get to those a little bit, but before we get there... 
we got to get to our next heavy hitter, number three, Josh's favorite, Freddy Krueger, the Sleep Demon. All right. So the original Nightmare on Elm Street is like one of my top five favorite films of all time. Definitely my my top slasher film. So I got to be careful on not spending too much time on this, just like Jesse with, with Halloween. Like there's there's definitely some bias here and I'm going to try not to be that way and just go over points. I was actually surprised at how short I kept the Halloween thing and how much I didn't talk about it. I think it's because I purposely didn't write anything and I just went with it. <laughs> <laughs> you did a very good job. You did a surprisingly good job. So when I'm on Elm Street came out, it wasn't an, uh, a new director, writer or anything like that. Wes Craven already had a few films under his belt that were creepy, fucked up films. So we had Last, Last House, House on the Left. Left. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had The Hills Have Eyes 1 and 2. And we've got... I'm going to bounce around here. Probably I have to talk about Freddy Krueger and why he works and why he's different. You've got outlandish things that happen. He shapeshifts. You can have abrupt scene changes. You can have superhuman strength. You can have all kinds of stuff that don't make sense. And it's 100% okay because it takes place in the dream world. Right. They took horror and they took fantasy and they put it together. And it wasn't just horror. They took slashers and added fantasy and just really opened doors to we can do whatever we want in this movie. Exactly. And and so you don't have to ask why or how or that's not possible. And then at the same time, going back to movies, some of the movies of the 60s with that terror and dread is the idea that Wes Craven wanted to play with that if you die in your sleep, you die in real life. So you can leave this movie going home at the time like, oh, man, I'm fucking scared to go to sleep now. Boogeyman is going to come get me in my dreams. Um, One of my sets of VHS extras interviewing Wes Craven, he actually said he read a newspaper article where a boy in India died from what they could tell in his sleep. Yeah, and had the found, coffee pot in the closet right, right. and all that shit. And that's all he needed to make a movie. And he just went with it. Yep. So we've got our um, we got our group of kids here. We've got Nancy being the good girl, her friend Tina. Um, we've got the jock, I guess, with. Johnny Depp and Glenn with his cut off yeah, just just below the chest shirts. It's really funny to think that he's supposed to be like the jock hero type guy, but he was just so tiny and skinny. <laughs> yeah, and he was real standoffish through the whole thing. Like, yeah, I don't. I, I'm hearing about this, but I read this book here. I'll tell you tell you about that about controlling your dreams. But I don't really want any part of he, this. He really fit though. I felt like his dialogue and everything. He he played the. You, you have the girl next door is the boy next door. Like he fulfilled yeah, that perfectly. He did. And uh, so we get our group of kids together. We've got a uh, Rod, Tina's boyfriend, who's the badass and, you know, the the hip dude of the group. And uh, pretty quick in the movie, we they're through discussion. They figure out they're having dreams about the same guy. And uh, we get the first death in the film with Tina and Rod. Right after they've had sex, of course. Right. But we get to see the thing play out from both sides with her being attacked by Freddy and then Rod in on the awakened state in the real world seeing this happen. But he just sees her. He doesn't see anything else. Floating on the ceiling. We get and the great marks. gimbal work with all that, with her being drug up the wall and being dropped on the bed. He sees the slices across her chest. All of this is just totally out of left field. We right, right. This, this hasn't been shown to this extent, and this is your first kill in the movie. Like, right. we're going on a completely different kind of ride here. And not just in slasher movies, like horror movies as a whole, you didn't have anything with that crazy level, like cinematography and cutting back and forth and, and seeing everything from both perspectives like that. It was just like really new. Yeah. And that's another thing that makes it so scary because here's the helpless boyfriend watching this happen and there's nothing he can do. He's just seeing all this go down and there's nobody there to attack or try to get her away from. So, of course, he gets arrested because... What else are you going to do? Right. They find you're covered in blood. The room's covered in blood. You were with her. You had to have done this. And uh, story moves on that uh, we come to find out from Nancy's mother getting sick and tired of hearing about all this dream stuff, drinking heavily more and more through the movie. 
And finally, she takes her down to the basement and she's like, look, there was this guy and he was a child murderer and he got arrested and somebody didn't sign a search warrant in the right place or something. I may be quoting one of the later movies, but she says through a technicality, he got off. So we got together and we took care of him. They made a lynch mob and they burned his ass alive. Burned his ass alive. And, you know, even pulls out the glove like he's gone, honey. It's okay." And Nancy's like. She flips. She's like, yo, so we're paying for this now because you and your tennis buddies got together and torched this guy. And that's another thing that's really awesome in this movie was not to take away from what character there is in other slashers, but Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Even up until then, it was standard. This guy has to do a bunch of stunts, put a stuntman in the suit, call it a day, which didn't completely happen in Halloween. As a matter of fact, I think there was like seven different people. That it's, ended- it's, it's three because you had Nick Castle's on set to hang out with John Carpenter. And he, I mean, he invented the, the gate and the walk and the head tilt and he did it okay. mainly. The special effects guy who was one of the producers, I think, also did it. Because he would know like the weak spots in the doors to punch because he prepped them. Okay. Okay. So he would put on the mask and he'd like punch through the closet door and shit like that. And then uh, they decided that when they showed his face, when Lori pulls it off, they wanted the face of an angel. Uh, so I, I guess they're telling Nick Castle he wasn't pretty enough. <laughs> <laughs> so they got another guy to just be there to pull the mask off, put it back on. And since they didn't have a lot of money, I think he does like part of that fight, like the stab and miss because they didn't want to like cut scenes and stuff okay. like that. So, so, but yeah. But we but we did have a little bit of, of actor character in there. But with Robert England, it was really like he really latched onto this. And uh, God, we, his one liners are great. Yeah, we got the, the start of the one liners, which weren't really big in the first movie. The first movie is really dark. We're not going to tear off into the sequels like we said, but he had some good ones. Like one of my favorite Freddie one liners in the first one when, when she's like, oh, my God, and he holds up his gloves. And he's like, God, this, this is, is God. God. Yes. <laughs> And uh, and that's that's all Robert England right there. That was great. And the other thing is you see he's reveling in what he's doing. Oh, yeah. He because loves it. he's torturing the parents. It's their damn fault. He's where he is, regardless of what. And he's tormenting the kids and he really gets off on it. It's not just kill, move on. Right. Like Mikey uh, and Jason, they had no emotion or personality to it whatsoever. And then I mean, this is 86. We had a lot of slasher movies in between there. But there were a lot of whodunits that had POV kills. So you didn't even know the killer was in the end most of the time. And not to say we didn't have other slasher movies at the time with full blown characters that were the killers. They just weren't that good. Slumber Party Massacre. Um, (laughs) He didn't really become a character to the second one, though. When he got the pompadour and he was like fucking doing the rockabilly and shit. I don't know what the hell happened there, but we'll get to that. But uh, we've got the the last part of the formula to me really comes together where we've got the group of kids. We need the strong girl. We need the sidekick girl. We need the jock. We need the bad boy stoner right, right. type things. Um, it's kind of like the last piece that was missing. And, and they really, I want to say this movie did a better job with the cast. Oh, absolutely. Like with them being people and characters and Karen and the story building. Cause Nancy's father is actually like, I don't know if he's the chief or the captain, but he's a cop. That he's was an important cop. part. You know, that was an important part. Like he had something to do with killing Freddie, even yeah, though he John was a cop. Saxon, he's still stuck where he was ever since what, like, Black, Black Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and like that, they, they get access to the prison to go see Rod when he's in there and you get to see him fucking get strangled by the snake blanket. Cause there's nothing there. It looks like a snake, but it's supposed to be Freddie doing it. Yeah. And it's because like the story building, you had the cop dad in there, which kind of plays into when Johnny Depp gets it at the end and he's going for Nancy, you yeah. know? And that's uh, and back to Nancy and the whole thing. She's like, I've got this figured out because they take her to a sleep center and she freaks out. And when she comes out of the dream, she's holding his hat, holding Freddy Krueger's hat. And she starts putting the pieces together and she's like, you know, daddy, I'm going to I'm going to get the bad man out of my dreams and I want you to be here to arrest him. And uh, she pulls him out into the real world, remembers what Glenn said he had read in a book that the dream powers and you have control over whatever's in there. And she wills away all the power she ever gave him. 
after he kills her mom. Um, and, <laughs> it all, and it all goes away. Right, right. And, and like a, a couple other elements, like this really had the best plot, I feel like, out of most of the slashers by then. And it, it still adhered to the rules doing the plot because most slasher movies did have like a past tragedy happen. And you always saw it at the beginning and at time lapse. This movie started off present with somebody dying. And then you find out about the past tragedy halfway through. And then and that past tragedy is such a double edged sword, because like I've joked about before, you know, here's Freddy Krueger, everyone's favorite child murder. That's, right. That's a horrible thing to say. But it's like, whose side are you on here? Right. Like, it was horrible what they did to him, but he was the one killing the kids. So. Right, right. And and let's talk about, you know, one of the main elements of a slasher to me is always having that final girl. Nancy was a badass final girl. Yes. Good I mean, she thing got, like, she had that book. Yeah, she got like the Ranger Survival Guide or whatever, and she's like fucking rigging fire axes to fall and like gunpowder and the light bulbs, and she fucks Freddy up. I mean, yeah. But yeah, I was I thought that was kind of like a lame ending in a way where I, I was happy to see them try to fully kill off Freddy, right? Yeah. But the I take all the power I gave you, and he just like turns into fucking Ziggy yeah, Stardust. He turns into the sparkles and falls <laughs> into her back and disappears. Yeah, that was really weak sauce, but. Wes Craven didn't want a sequel. He wanted it to end there. Right, right. And like you're saying, what happened with uh, Friday the 13th, this is right around the same time that the studios are figuring out that the successful movies, oh my God, we can just keep doing the same, not just copying other movies, but doing the same franchise. Like, let's just write another one. Let's just write another one. As long as we're getting return on investment. I mean, this is 86. So we probably already have three or four Halloweens or Friday the 13th at this point. Exactly. Uh, We got a couple of Texas Chainsaw Massacres at this point, you know, like. People are just making sequels, and that's just slashers. Horror movies are cheap to make. Slashers are just cheaper versions of horror movies. Yeah. But all these horror movies are just making sequel after sequel, and no matter how shitty they are, people keep going to them. Yep. And why not make money, right? (laughs) So this, like you're alluding to, this leaves us in in the the era of the shitstorm or flood of slashers, where it's every studio, every group, every writer, like, oh, we, we understand the formula now. Let's put out all this stuff. Um, were there any ones that, uh, that happened out, uh, out of the shit storm that you want to cover that maybe actually did something important that we still harken back to? I wouldn't say did something important, but I, I got a pretty decent list of them that we could cover, uh, very briefly that started in 1980 that people either love and they're always talked about as far as slashers, or they at least had that one really cool thing to them. Right. Okay. And I'm gonna try to do it. I think in best order chronologically that right. I can, but prom night came out in 1980 Canadian slasher. You're going to see that a lot here uh jamie lee curtis so like they straight up hey let's get jamie lee curtis from halloween she was awesome put her in there and um she didn't save the movie and god man i went back and watched this movie i hadn't seen it in a while there is so many scenes from carrie and prom night that i mix up like it's just it's so unfortunate <laughs> but you know the movie it's it's a whodunit you yep. uh you got like a really creepy scene at the beginning with the killer is coming the killer is coming and these kids your ass right out that window right, right then these Little kids are playing this fucked up game and you see they're actually kids and you see a, a a girl fall and die and somebody looms over her body and you don't know who it is. But you get this this whodunit movie and lots of POV kills some pretty graphic yeah. kills. It's got a little bit of a Jalo vibe with the black leather gloves going in, but it took hints from other movies because you have yeah. like the crank calls like Black Christmas. You know, Black Christmas had the Billy making those crazy calls and that's happening and the killer's kind of a little deranged, like the pencil tapping and all that. And. He does a lot of things to build up tension up to when somebody's going to die. Because when you think somebody's going to die, you're like, they're coming. The killer's coming. It kind of harkens back to yeah. the beginning. But like, you know, they're going to die and it just won't fucking happen. And then they finally just <laughs> get it. But the movie, had, it had a really cool decapitation scene. You know how like axes, you know, <laughs> but, but you got the, right, right. But like it, it that one, it, it's a huge favorite and I don't mind it. I just think, unfortunately, it's one of those movies when you've seen it once and you find out who the killer is. 
it it takes a lot away from it. Yeah, there's no. And this movie's so old. I'm I'm gonna like when we hit when we break the 2000s, I think we'll stop doing plot twists. But it it's a whodunit yeah. movie, and Jamie Lee Curtis's brother Alex ends up being the killer, and they're the one whose sister died at the beginning. So yeah. he's just mad and hunting people down. And I do think it's funny they hadn't completely ran out of holidays yet, but they decided to use prom night, which was an event instead of a holiday. Yeah. But that one that one is a favorite and it even got remade. But like it, it did a good job of doing like a whodunit with lots of red herrings because they they allude to the killer being oh, like yeah. a completely All separate guy. Place, yeah. But I mean, it, it, it really followed parts of that formula and borrowed things like the crank calls and it, it made it work. And then we got Terror Train also came out in 1980. It could have been called New Year's Eve. At least they decided to not do that. Right. Yeah. I hate Terror Train. I really do. Yeah, I hate to say I, it. I didn't go back and rewatch it because I remember watching it probably at your house back in the day um, when we were like 15 or 16. I'm like, that was, I'm done with that. Don't I, have to do that again. I thought I had seen it, but when I watched it the other day, it really felt like it was the first time. Really? Yeah, but I mean, it's Crap, also. I have can, to go back and rewatch it. It's a Canadian slasher movie. Has Jamie Lee Curtis again. Since in a pattern here. David Copperfield's in it for some fucking reason as the magician. I don't know. that. Don't get me started on that plot. But this movie uh, did something. He was doing well in those years. Yeah, I mean, I loved David Copperfield when I was a kid, but I mean, it just, it was, he felt really out of place in this movie and some weird scenes of him and Jamie Lee Curtis. But what <laughs> this movie did that was cool, the train was very claustrophobic. It was a very claustrophobic place to have the slasher chasing you down because you had fucking yeah, nowhere to run. no escape. I mean, it could have been a boat. Might as well have been a boat. Like either one that was fucked. So that was new and different. Waters. And something I wish I could see done to better effect in another movie, the killer, every time he kills somebody, takes their costume, right? So you yeah. never know. I mean, I guess we know what costume the killer's in, but the people don't. Yeah. So that was new. Like the claustrophobia and the costume swaps were awesome. So then we've got uh, My Bloody Valentine, the 81 version, which uh, it's Can- Canadian. Canadian again. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there an- are some ho- holidays that hadn't been used. A- another, at this point. another holiday. And it's the uh, the town is. Uh, oh, Valentine something uh, Valentine Hills or something, something silly. like that. It's, it's so a mining that, town, that's right? The town. And so we had the slasher or we had the killer from years ago that killed everybody. And the town's like, Oh, we can't celebrate this holiday anymore. And it's what, like 20 years later, something like and that. Yeah. They're like, okay, you know, miners, it's just one of those. It's, it's like your small town where everybody knows everybody. And like the mine workers are the kids of right, the town, right. so to speak. And they're getting where they can have their party. Well, then the kills start happening, which we do have the neat thing with the, the hearts being cut out of people right, right. and being left for people in the I mean, boxes. he's like a straight-up serial killer. He had, like, a calling card, right? Yeah. So that was pretty neat. But we, we get to where the kills start happening, and the mayor's like, okay, we're, we're tearing all da- all the the decorations down and all this crap. So the kids end up going to the mine where they're going to have their party. And we start having— Terrible idea if he's supposed to live in the mines and he comes out of there to kill. Let's just go to him. Exactly. But it was kind of cool um, as far as an iconic killer as he's just, you know, the guy with the full mask on. It with, fit into the town, but it was really creepy looking. Yeah. And it's a cool thing. They use the past tragedy. Yep. But instead of it being a past tragedy caused the killer, the killer was, was the, past. the tragedy. Yeah. yeah. And then he's supposed to be an insane asylum as far as they know. And you don't know, is he back? Because they think he might be out. I think they end up saying, like, we can't find record of him being here. Yeah. So you don't know if it's him or if somebody else. kills shitty start, love triangle all, going on. Yeah. yeah. So like I say, when the kills start, they're all convinced that he has come back. And that's what right, they start right. saying. It's like, I forget his damn name. It's like, blah, 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 is back. And, uh, but then you find out that it's not him. Right, right. And it's one of the guys involved in the shitty love triangle. It's Axel. And. I'm going to say something that I normally don't say because, you know, I I don't like sequels for the most part. Yeah. This movie could have had a sequel. He was pretty good. He did his own thing. He was copycatting. I wish I could remember the original killer's name, but he's copycatting him pretty well. 
and they think they got him pinned down. He cuts his own fucking hand off just to get, to get away. away. Yeah. And he's, you know, so it's not like, a, oh, he fell in the water. We didn't see him down on camera. He might be alive. Motherfucker got away and just yelled <laughs> crazy shit as he ran down the tunnels. He's still out there somewhere. Yeah. Interesting flick. Good enough for a remake, but they didn't didn't do the sequels. I don't know if it didn't do good uh, monetarily or not. It, the fatigue maybe started. And I don't really know why they didn't make a, a sequel. I mean, the Canadians were, were just shitting out slashers at this point, so they might have just had other ideas to work with. But it the, that's a movie with a pretty good remake, if I remember correctly. I've only yeah. seen the remake once, but I enjoyed it. Um, another one, I always remember this being one of my favorite slasher movies from 81, Happy Birthday to Me. I love this movie, and I just went back and rewatched it again. I actually watched every movie on this fucking list of these episodes that we're doing. <laughs> but um, I'm going to do a. I think at the end, I'm going to see the kill count for every movie. And then okay. how many people I saw die over the course of a month. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. But but uh, happy birthday to me. Once again, it's a Canadian slasher. So they picked the holiday of birthdays, right? Um, it's the same producers that made My Bloody Valentine. It okay. actually has a pretty deep plot. Of uh, it being a whodunit and people getting picked off, but the main girl has like blackout periods and she had like experimental brain surgery because of an accident she was in at the beginning. You know, they got that chicken thing, that game of chicken with like jumping the drawbridge. Yeah. And her and her mom on her birthday, uh, her 16th birthday is like two years before we're on the drawbridge and they fell in the water and the mom died and she lived. I had to get brain surgery. So she's starting to think, okay. oh, my God, these blackouts are because I'm fucking killing people because they messed my brain up. And that was kind of new and original. I love unreliable narrators. That's why I love shows like Mr. Robot and things like that, because you don't know what the fuck's really going on and if no. you should trust it or not. But you, you get to the end and she finds like, a, or the dad actually comes home and sees all of the friends dead at a, at a table and a birthday cake. And, and the main girl, the final girl is walking out singing happy birthday to me at the cake and kills the dad. And there's a body that's laying down face first and she sits up and it's the main girl. There's two of them. What the fuck? There's two <laughs> of them here. And you, you kind of get a Scooby-Doo ending because one of them tears the, the mask off. That's she has right. a mask that's so realistic looking that she can pass as her. And you find out that she has like a half-sister. Wes Craven pretty much stole the idea for Scream 3. But like the mom was apparently sleeping around a lot, had the second kid. Her, she wasn't getting enough love. And then she died. So since she died because of the birthday party, she decided to go back and kill everybody. Yeah. Right, right. And she ends up, you know, killing her. And I think... Yeah, so she kills her half-sister, who's her best friend through a good part of the movie, right? Okay. But, uh, you know, she ends up killing her, and the cop comes in the room, and here she is standing there with all these dead bodies singing happy birthday to me. So she probably did the time for the crime, you know? Yeah. But that movie, I mean, we got a female killer, which was cool. You don't get those a whole lot. Yep. It's hard to do, and this isn't sexist. It's just the women, you know, usually they pick these little petite women to be the characters of the cast in the movie. And you have to picture them like picking men up and strangling them to death that weigh twice their weight. Oh, yeah. That, like something I wanted to say earlier was Mrs. Voorhees must have been a strong motherfucker. Right. Because the kill she did in that movie. And, and Mrs. Voorhees was, I mean, to me, it's the first female slasher. But like she did a lot of like a, the arrows and axe into the head. So you didn't see any like picking up and strangling. But there was some cool ass kills in Happy Birthday to me. The scarf into the motorcycle to choke the guy to death and, and shit like that. It was, it was really well done. And then we get to 82, my birth year. Your birth year, too, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Slumber Party Massacre. I remembered liking this movie so much more, and then I watched it. Um, it, it has some. <laughs> I think. I think back in the day when we saw this, may have been like around the same time we were watching trauma movies, and yeah. like just found out about like uh, 
uh, Bruce Campbell films and stuff like that. So we may have been in the mind frame that comedy was okay, but this didn't go right. I was a big trauma (laughs) film when I saw this. I do remember this. And this might have been actually when I was the assistant manager at the video store and I was just bringing shit home regularly. Okay. But I think I saw the second one first and he's got like the pompadour and the fucking guitar with the drill on it. And he's like dancing and then went back probably. So, okay. And that's, I mean. I got to go back and watch the whole series at some point, but um, people regularly say that the Slumber Party Massacre franchise actually got better as it went because it it embraced the comedy. Uh, There's lots okay. of spoof comedy stuff in the movie, but not fully. It's like they couldn't commit to either side. Yeah, it, it has some interesting facts to it. It was originally supposed to be called Don't Open the Door. The director, Amy Jones, had worked with Scorsese uh, as an editor on movies. I think. Uh, no shit. Yeah, I don't remember if it was like Taxi or Raging Bull, but she had worked on that and she wanted to get into directing. So she knew Roger Corman was doing like these exploitation type flicks and things like that. And she found a script on the shelf called Don't Open the Door, written by, oddly enough, a feminist writer. Okay. Because this movie has lots of nudity and like sex stuff in it. And it's because she wanted the killer to be like representative of like a woman losing her virginity. Which like there's a couple scenes like there's one of them where the killer drops the drill down in between his legs and the camera's on. It's like the dong pops out and the girl's eyes get real big, you know. But she took the script and she filmed like the first 15 minutes of the movie, showed it to Roger Corman. He's like, how much money did you spend on this? And she's like a thousand bucks. And he's like, you got a career in, in a word. <laughs> and he offered for her to make the whole movie. She didn't actually want to make Don't Open the Door. She was just like, look what I can do. Give me a script. Yeah. He wanted her to do that script. And she had a choice. A victim of her own success. Be the editor of E.T. Or direct this movie. Oh. She said she was actually happy with the choice because she wanted to be a director, not an editor. Yeah. So she would have probably got an award for editing in E.T., right? What and if then, she really sucked at editing? Though? Oh, she might have. Though. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't think Scorsese would have helped her out if she was a shitty editor on his film, though. Touche. Uh, he's a great filmmaker, right? But, I mean, it's just, oh, what, what do the girls say at the beginning? you got an opening shower scene. All the girls are naked, you know, and they're like, oh, I think your tits are getting bigger and weird stuff like that. <laughs> but I, this movie, like, really solidified the we can throw as many naked girls as we want in the movie and just kill them off. You know, there were, I don't yeah. even think there was sex. They're just naked. There's the one girl with her boyfriend in the car, but... That is a favorite for a lot of people. And I felt I would have felt bad if we didn't cover it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to go through it. That might be fun to do the whole franchise one time because it, it just gets ridiculous. It might be. And now that you've talked about it, it does make me want to go back and watch it <laughs> and especially not be 15 and watch it. Right. right. You know. And and we're kind of going on a length here. So we'll try to help. But there's some there's some big movies that count. Sleepaway Camp was another big one. It's not one of my favorites, but it really did some cool shit for the genre. It's a Friday the 13th ripoff. You have campers and counselors getting murdered at a camp. And um, and we had seen that that before. But what they did in this movie is they actually used 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids to play teenagers. So there weren't adults playing the teenagers. Yeah. So it makes it more in their mid 20s playing on 16 year olds. Right. Right. And it makes it more fucked up when you see like a kid get killed or a kid doing the killing. And I felt like it was really easy to guess who the killer was. But then you get that shock ending where it's a boy. Surprise, but you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, the crazy fucking aunt that raised her wanted a, a girl and another son's. I guess that's probably what fucked her up because, like, the that's sexual right, tension right. there's the boy yeah. trying to make out with her and he likes her, he's probably really confused, you yeah. know, and, and that causes the kills. But I would say, like, using actual kids for the movie was the big shock factor thing for that, yeah, I can and, definitely see that, right? Right, and in '84, Silent Night, Deadly Night came out. Fucking Santa the Killer, right? Yeah. Really? I mean, this movie was just an awesome axe murderer movie because I'm a big fan of watching the guy run in and swinging an axe, but you really you like you, guys just wielding weapons. That's just your thing. I mean, the, the axe <laughs> is just like a neat weapon, okay? But um, it's pretty cool because in this movie, instead of following like the group of survivors or teenagers or the final girl, it follows the killer from the beginning. You see him. Have you seen this movie? Not in a long time. Okay. 
So uh, just real briefly, the kid on Christmas, he visits his grandpa at like a retirement place with his with his parents and he's young. and He's got a baby brother in the car and his grandfather tells us some crazy shit about how like the naughty kids get punished by Santa Claus. It's kind of traumatic. And then the, the car gets carjacked basically by a guy in a Santa suit that murders the parents in front of the kid while he runs off and hides in the desert. Nice. And him and the brother live and he goes through an orphanage and he basically Santa Claus freaks him out. Right. Yeah. But he ends up right. Don- so. All right. He ends up donning the Santa Claus costume and just going in and getting work that's done. Right, that's right. It, it's it's worth watching, but like it's one of those movies that's just a kill movie. There's not really much to it, but it was yeah. really neat. Like have empathy for the killer and follow him, the killer for the whole movie. I got you. Um, another one that uh, we definitely need to touch on is April Fool's Day. This one, it's one of those that it starts off like, okay, okay, we got the tropes. We got our pigeonholed characters. We think we know where we're going. They're going out to the dinner party on the island. I think it's on an island. I know they got to get yeah, there on gotta a take friggin' a boat. So. I will say, I watched this movie with my mom and sister probably in the early 90s, and I fucking loved it, and I never went back and rewatched it until now. Oh, really? I wish I would have kept it that way. But Yeah, it does not hold up. Um, it's got some neat kills in it, but it's like the whole- Does it? <laughs> Touche, again. Okay, when you're watching it, it's got some neat kills right, in it, right. and it's and it does this great build up to a huge letdown. It's the slasher movie with nobody dies. Yeah, yeah. It's, so the I mean, whole it, thing was a fucking prank. Yeah, yeah. And the movie should have fucking told it to you right there. The name being April Fool's Day, but it, I don't know. It's the first slasher movie I ever saw. This is just a big fuck you to the to the audience. Yes, because you see all these people. You never actually see anybody die. No, you, you think they you find do. The, they, well, we, they, no, they find the bodies. They, find the bodies, they always yeah. find the bodies one at a time. And you get down to the final girl at the end and she ends up busting into a parlor and they're all just hanging out. Right. Yeah. And what it is, is the rich girl whose mansion it was, she inherited it from her parents, wants to make a whodunit like hotel. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You come, come out here, you pay, you you do the experience. Did it fool y'all? Yeah. It fooled y'all. Cool. I got right, a good right. idea. So she tested it. And like the sheriff was in on it. He was an actor. Yeah. You see like a doc guy get his face ripped apart. He's actually the special effects guy. Yeah. Right. And they would just come to the friends one at a time and, and surprise them and tell them. And you want to find out how it works. And it just ends with the big fuck you. And then you think she's getting killed by one of the friends. And that's also a prank. So yeah, when she comes out behind two, her to slit the right? throat, you're like, yay, finally. And like, oh, no. Interesting fact, though, this movie's novelization had an, another layer to it at the end. I don't think it had the slit in the throat like on the bed after after the, the fuck you was done, basically. But you yeah. know that it was set up to practice for this whodunit hotel. And her brother comes in and murders her so that he can get the inheritance. Wow. Ah. So that would have been a better ending. <laughs> now, we also had uh, Jenny from Friday the 13th 2, whatever the actress's name is. Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. remember, but she was in that film. Yeah, yeah, there's Biff was in it from Back to the Future. Yes. <laughs> I knew there was somebody that I was, when I rewatched it, I'm like, holy shit. But, you know, so that like, that got us like a huge way through the 80s. And then yeah. uh, there's sequels going on in there, obviously. And then in, I want to say, 88, we got Child's Play. And Child's Play... Like Nightmare on Elm Street decided to go the non-human route yep. eventually, right? There's there's a lot of things. Well, this, Child's Play is a horror movie through and through, and it is definitely a slasher to me. Yes. But it could have been other things. Like you could like, like it, a possession movie. It's a possession movie, but there's other ways it could have gone. It's almost a whodunit. But brief summary, you see uh, cops chasing two guys, and one of them is fucking Brad Dourif. I love that guy, right? <laughs> right. He's having a shootout with the cop, and he gets winged, I think, and he ends up making it in a toy store, and he's apparently terrible at gunfights because the shitty gunfight he gets shot yeah. right and while he's bleeding out he finds this doll and he does some voodoo spell on it and lightning strikes the store and it explodes right we know a spell was done but i don't i mean i don't think it's implied that he's possessing the doll no because he's just kind of like ends up laying there next to it right and then it cuts to 
honestly, he's one of the most adorable kids I can think of in a horror movie or slasher movie. And I don't know. I guess he, it's his fifth birthday, right? But yeah. I don't know how old the actor was. But um, the kid's name's Andy, yeah, right? The, the, the kid's innocent as fuck and yeah, yeah. like like down to earth. <laughs> and it makes some of the lines in the movie a little fucked up. Yes. But this commercial comes on and you see this fucked up looking doll that as soon as I saw it, I'm immediately my buddy. My buddy. That damn song. Oh, yeah. It always got stuck in your head. And that doll was creepy, too. But yes. clearly, they saw the Hasbro doll. It was like, hey, I can make a movie off of that, right? Yeah. And he's, he's got, like, the toys in the room, and he wants it. And he's making this mess, making bed and breakfast for his mom. And he's happy. And he gets his birthday present. And it's fucking close, right? Don't give a five-year-old clothes. They're just not happy about it. You yeah. just get them clothes on the regular. You get them toys Wait, for the birthday. He did get the tool set, though. He got the tool set to go to the doll he didn't have. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. that's, like, insult to injury. Right, right, but the mom ends up, uh, she's at work, her best friend works with her. Apparently a homeless guy, for some reason, has one of these dolls for sale in a back alley. Yeah, Seems I, like a bad I like idea. to think that during the explosion, that, like, what we didn't get to see was the one doll that, like, went way off out of frame, and, like, two blocks over, he's just, do-do-do-do, going along with his cart, and, and this box lands there, he's like, oh, come on, sell me this. He could have technically <laughs> crawled into a different box to look clean. Possibly. He is a living doll. Yeah. And I think he even, uh... Doesn't he get questioned or something later? And he's like, I got it from this old store, blah, 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 or something. Right, right, because they go back to the site later in the movie. But but yeah, so she got the back alley doll for sale that nobody can get anywhere. The kid's upset that he didn't get what he wanted. So here's the lead. The mom's going to save the day. Right, right. So she gets the doll, takes it home, goes, I don't remember if she has to work late. Her best friend ends up babysitting. Yeah. And you get the first, it's not the first kill, because you saw, you know, the fucking him die at the beginning, right? Serial yeah. killer, Charles Lee Ray, right? You see like a POV from a short camera view run and, and push Maggie, the mom's best friend, out the window and yeah. she dies. And then, you know, the mom comes home from work and the police are there. And this is where the movie could have done a couple of things, right? The movie's kind of playing like, did the kid do it or did the doll? Yeah. It really could be they're, they're looking at the footprints in the, the flower or whatever and asking to see the kid's shoes. And why didn't they check the shoes he was wearing? He's like, I checked every shoe in the closet. <laughs> what I want to know is why when you see that shot of what happens to her, she's like 10 feet away from that right. window when she gets pushed and stumbles and stumbles and stumbles all the way across the table and then continues to stumble right, all the right. way out the window. That just bothers me. But the movie could have <laughs> gone a lot of ways. Have you ever seen the original movie poster for the movie? I don't. It's a skyscraper know. and a body falling, and yes, then like a killer's face in the background. It's the one that my wife has signed. Okay, no, nothing to do with a doll. Yeah, right, it right. doesn't tell you shit. So at this point in the movie, the doll could be possessed. Yep. Two ways: it could be possessed and actually killed Maggie. It could be possessed in a way that it just corrupts the child. Yes. Or the kid could just be fucking crazy and did it. Yeah. Right. So that was really neat that it could have gone either way, but you know, uh, the kid ends up getting put not really in a mental ward but they're like testing him to see if something's wrong with them yeah because they're, they're they're definitely thinking something is he sneaks off. out and in in the doll you know like they go and they fucking you at that point in the movie you know the doll's real you can see him running around yeah and like the kid goes into the crack house or whatever yeah well he's got a tinkle remember he goes yeah <laughs> that's right that's so right. he goes and starts peeing and he goes in and he, and he blows up his old partner but the kid is really innocent in all this. And I think if it would have gone the way where it was the killer or he was the killer, that could have been really cool, whether he was being corrupted or not. Yeah. But he's so innocent. And, and you get to see things like uh, when the cop's talking, he's like, oh, Chucky said his name's Charles Lee Ray and, and daddy sent him from heaven. And he said Aunt Maggie was a real bitch and got what she deserved. You know, yeah. like when he says it, it's just really like, what the <laughs> fuck? But, you know, you have this you have the doll go around and, and kill people. So you got this non-human killer and you eventually figure out it is the doll. 
and yeah. the you find out it's the voodoo spell, and that he's turning the dolls becoming alive, and he can die. So he has to possess he has to get out of it. Yeah, right. He has to possess the first body that he that he revealed himself to. So was, I got a date with a six year old boy. <laughs> Fuck that funny quote, but Brad Dourif's voice fantastic as Chucky. Yes, one liners to rival Fred Krueger. Absolutely. Okay. So in some cases, I'd say beat it, but. Chris Sarandon was in the movie. He played the cop, Mike. He was really good. I love him yeah. in Fright Night. You know, he's the vampire next door, Jerry, right? Yeah. Like, it, it had a good cast, and it actually had a better plot than a lot of slasher and horror movies do. Yeah, and it, it was one that if you, going back and rewatching it, it really can just kind of hang out as a movie. Right. Um, you don't have to pigeonhole it. You can just say, watch this flick. Right. And, and it's because I feel like that it could have gone multiple ways. And and. The use of practical effects, like thank God CGI wasn't a thing. Yeah, once the, we get the 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 burned up Chucky that's yeah. super pissed off. Well, the the animatronics were top notch for the face, right? Yeah, and uh, I know that they were having. To, I saw in a documentary they were having to actually they would check your person when you left the set if you worked there because they were so fucking expensive. They only had so many of them, right? To make sure <laughs> nobody stole it. And then the costume didn't look cheesy on the little guy playing Chucky, Mm-mm. and they would cut back and forth in between the two, right? Yeah. And the movie does have some solid kills. It has some really creepy fucking scenes like when when uh, Andy's, you know, getting they're checking on him and she goes back home by herself and she's looking at the doll, just worried about her son. I don't remember if he does it before or after. She, she finds the box, picks it up and the batteries fall out. Yeah. And then she looks at the box and says the batteries aren't in them. And then she picks him up and he's like, want to play in the innocent doll voice. Right. And she throws him and he rolls under the couch and then she's threatening to burn him, you know, yep. like in the fireplace. And she's yelling at him, trying to get him to talk. And she's like, I said, talk to me, damn it. And he, he looks at her like, you stupid bitch, you filthy slut. I'll teach you to fuck with me. You know, and you're like, oh, my exactly. God. Like, oh, shit. Now and she knows for sure. He also, uh, <laughs> when he's in the elevator trying to get to the house and yeah. the old lady's like, what an ugly doll. And he's yeah. like, fuck you, lady. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, like, the Chucky movies, they go out there and yes. get goofy. This one wasn't. No. But these lines fit. <laughs> no, they were fine. And it didn't feel it didn't feel slapsticky. It didn't feel schlocky. It felt like this is just a pissed off motherfucker who's gonna take no one shit. And he's very unhappy that he's stuck in a fucking child's it, doll. And like I said, really some of the better special effects in a movie. Absolutely. You got some cool kills. I don't understand why there's like a what what's he my buddy was a weird kids. What's he called? A good guy doll? Yeah. What's up with a good guy doll knife? You notice he has a knife that looks like it goes with the toy. I don't know. Man, so different it's times, not without man, flaws. Different it's not times. without flaws. But we got another non-human slasher. Um, the final girl is both the mom and the little boy, really. Yeah. Uh, we got some some wicked kills, and I mean, it's just a solid flick that I feel like was helping solidify as we're getting near the end of this like cycle of slasher movies. Yeah, it was, it was showing doing something different, and showing that if you had a well-made movie, and we probably started getting into where at the point where more money was being pumped into some of these films. Right. But if you had a good movie, it didn't matter if it was a horror slash or whatever, make the movie and have your idea. Right, right. Really was. There was probably a couple other new things in there that just weren't as big. Yeah. And then it really starts dying down. I, I would say it's the last big one. We'll, we'll get into the, the next episode is going to be about the 90s. Yep, yep. And there's going to be a couple of things at the beginning of the 90s. And then it just fucking dies for a few years and comes back. You'll have to tune in next Friday for that one, though. And uh, don't forget to rate and review this one so we can know how we're doing. If you have any comments about the show, shoot us an email at sbspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us at Instagram and Twitter at sbspodcast. And uh, we'll start putting some stuff on there as we see some traction. Yep, yep. But until then, I guess this is the end, friend. <laughs>